Welcome to the Season 2 premiere of No Kidding Me Too. This episode was recorded as part of a special remote video event during New York Advertising Week 2021, so it'll sound a little different than what you're used to. Enjoy! Former podcast host and a life coach. And we are so thrilled to have you, Kelly. I'm Joey Pants. I'm Danny Pants. And this is No Kidding Me Too. Thanks for having me, you guys. I I love what you guys are doing. You know, the father-daughter dance is fun. It is fun. It's a little nerve-wracking at times. There's a lot of discovery, but it's really fun. Kelly <laughs> thinks I talk too much. Um Hey, you Kelly, can make that own conclusion for yourself at the end of this, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Women on the Verge, um, uh, your coaching.com. Uh, I was filling uh, it out before this. Uh, I'm sorry, you broke up there. So you were asking about my uh, Women, Women on, the, on Verge? the Verge. Yes, your life coaching site, which I was looking at last night and I was like, oh, well, I'll fill this out. This is really amazing. <laughs> so I want to hear from the woman herself. What inspired you to create it? What's the program like? Oh, uh, I've always been fascinated by my own human journey and my own transformation. I had a, a, a kind of a bumpy mental health ride earlier in my life. And it took me a long time to become a grown-up adult person. And uh, I got interested in Jungian depth psychology uh, in 2001 and got my master's in that. And I wanted to take what I learned there to help. Well, it helped me so much to learn about myself and my own journey and the healing journey and, and, and women's challenges in particular and, and how it's, and how there's a unique part of that because of our role in the culture and being a good daughter and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, my own big shadow in my own life. I'm sure, Danny, you can relate. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, uh, so what I did three years ago, I've been a life coach since about 2006, 2007. My dad died in 2008. I jumped back into the entertainment industry at that time. Uh, wrote a memoir, had a solo show, both of them called A Carlin Home Companion. Uh, but about four years ago, all that had kind of uh, lived out its little life. And I knew that I wanted to get back to this transformational work. And I'm very interested in helping women who I know want to make a dent in the world, but feel like they, you know, either they don't feel fully authentic yet, fully able to use their voice and claim their voice and, or they may know who that is, who they, who they are, but they're not sure about how to step out into the world. And so I wanted to uh, create a year long program that would give them enough time to really cook, to really do the deep work. The, the tagline of my business is go deep to take the leap. Thus, the depth psychology that I study. So, uh, I, I love working with women. I, I love working with all sorts of people, but, um, there's something about, um, a woman's journey and the healing that goes on for a woman that, um, is particular, particularly juicy for me. I want to know more about the mental bump, bump in your childhood because here, you know, our childhood traumas and experiences make up who we are. That's that's why we're here. That's why we created this podcast. And 
affects our adulthood so much, but you said it took a long time for you to become an adult. And I struggle with that. So I'm wondering, do you know what age you think it finally started? Cause I'm always like, Oh, I'm 29. I have all this stuff. And I always like, just get so mad at myself for not being at a certain place that I think I should be because of the way society is. Yeah. Oh, Danny, I can so relate to that. Um, <laughs> and that big bar that we all hold for ourselves way, way, way up here, especially, um, like I said, those of us who grow up with, you know, a parent who's particularly successful or in the culture. Uh, and really, I have to tell you, my adulthood, I don't feel like I really fully, fully, fully landed until my 40s, my early 40s, like I was still struggling in my 30s to find my feet on the ground. Even mm -hmm. I had, I had a lot of anxiety and depression uh, in my teens. And in my 20s, I had panic attack disorder. Uh, both my parents were addicts and alcoholics. Um, and so it was a lot of chaos from like age three until my mom got sober when I was around 12 years old. Uh, and when they were sober, my parents were amazing parents. They were amazing, you know, uh, husband and wife together. And we were a great team. I'm an only child. Uh, but addiction really did put a big kind of, uh, you know, dent in our lives uh, mm -hmm. for all three of us. And um, so I, I struggled with even feeling like I was safe in my body, you know, with the mm -hmm. anxiety and the depression and the panic attacks really did were very, very difficult for me. And then in my 30s, I started venturing out into the world, kind of the stuff you do in your 20s is I did it in my 30s. That's why I think yeah. I'm always a decade behind in some ways. And, uh, and so, you know, now I feel like an old crone. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So being an only child, what like habits did you create with parents that were addicts that took a while for you to like kind of readjust? Like one that I noticed that I created for myself was like being the mediator. And oh, you were yeah. an only child. I had oh. siblings, oh, but yeah. I was, I had to be the good one and I had to make sure mom and dad were okay. I was the one if dad was in a mood Danny, you got to go talk to dad. You got to go do that. And that's something I'm discovering in therapy and how to, how to fix that. But because I still do it to this day, I don't, I don't want to make anyone mad. I got to make sure everything's a certain way because anything can set someone off. Yes, you nailed it, Danny. I it's called the parentified child. And oh, I didn't know there was a term for there's it. There's a term for it. Yes, uh, we become we become the parent. We take the parental role where we try to um, do all the emotional labor for the family. Uh, when we're just a little kid, we're supposed to be kind of protected from all of that. And so, yeah, it ends up becoming a fixing thing, and the whole codependent world begins for you, so that you're always reading a room and always wondering how to read the room, how to keep the room at a certain temperature and a certain place emotionally. And it's exhausting. And then our own feelings, our own desires, our own goals, our own dreams always get put, you know, second, third and fourth on the list because we're in survival mode. We're going to make sure that the pack makes it through to the other side. And so sometimes we're the confidant. I was a confidant for my father too. My mom was the alcoholic in our family. My dad smoked weed, you know, he did other stuff. He was much more functioning. Clearly, he had a huge career. Uh, and so my dad and I would get together to try to manage my mom's alcoholism. So, you know, I became, and, and partly what happens to that 
too for the child is that they feel more power than they actually have. And they actually feel like they're more in charge than they are. And so going into adulthood, that can kind of screw you up in some ways also, because you feel like you have an obligation <laughs> to, to fix and help the world when people don't necessarily invite you into that. So for me, becoming a therapist, first I got my master's in therapy and counseling, and I decided not to become a therapist. But even with the life coaching, I'm always having to check myself. It's my biggest a learning curve in being a guide for other people's healing is to not be the fixer, to not be the one who does the work for them, but just creates a space and structure for them to do the work because that's really how only how the work gets done anyway. Kelly, I, I you know, in, in hearing you talk, I, I identify with you in so many ways. Um, I, my mother wasn't an alcoholic. She had an alcoholic parent, and uh, and he was he was a raving lunatic. There was sexual abuse in, involved, and and uh, it always felt like, um, well, it, it it was like that. My mom's edict was that the best man in the world is uh, wasn't good enough for the worst hua. And uh, and I was her confidant until I reached puberty. Then then I became the enemy. And and, and the test yes. was so great. And Daniela knows this, but in my sixties, because my mother left my father for her third cousin who came back from prison, uh, he was living with us, and. Uh, when she threw my father out because she was always in love with, with cousin Flory, she told me that cousin Flory was in fact my biological father. Now, wow. So I don't, I, I can't even understand what that meant. But, but it was part of uh, her building a case against my father to demonize my father because of the guilt that she felt. She wanted, she didn't want to lose the kids. So she turned him into the enemy and see what he did. And if it wasn't, yeah. true, it would have been out on the street. Because we were already, at that time, we were living on welfare in the low housing federal projects in Hoboken. So, so then, but then she got guilty and then she took it back. So back and forth, he is, he isn't, he is, he isn't. Uh, and then I, I wrote a book in 2003 where I talked about that. My sister... Uh, was upset and finally confronted me. And uh, long story short, we got 23andMe the uh, the uh, DNA tests. Yeah, do not share the same biological father. Wow, but doesn't mean that Florio is my father. <laughs> <laughs> One of my cousins told uh, my my sister. There was this Italian guy who came in on one of the ships in the 50s because I was conceived in 1950. I was born in 51. So these guys would come in like Arthur Miller, A View from the Bridge. You know, they'd come in, they'd work off their debt, uh, for, you know, for next to nothing. And as soon as they were paid off, they would drop a dime on them and the INS would come and grab them and send them back to Italy. 
So oh. there's a chance that it, that it might be one of those guys. So uh, you know, <laughs> to be 62 or 63 years old and this out, um, you know, I I was diagnosed with clinical depression uh, after 2001 and uh, working with my psychiatrist. Uh, he suggested the 12 step program and that my sponsor, after talking to me, told me to identify myself as an alcoholic, even though I was really crazy. Um, but to call myself an alcoholic so I could get into the room. Uh, but, it, but, but the idea that, you know, they always say in there that it's, it's, uh, it's 10% drinking and 90% thinking, uh, Yes, a hundred percent. I got I got to the point where it was like, well, why am I de- why am I identifying myself by my symptom that that drugs and alcohol was symptomatic? It was my escape mess. It was my medication. It was my escape mechanism. Right. Just like just yeah. like success was was my you know escape. You know, if I could be successful, if I could live. The, the dream that was in my head, then this feeling would go away. Yeah. I, I mean, I think all, all that kind of stuff is like, we're always trying to manage our anxiety and depression, right? With all, with anything we do that's like that. It's a distraction. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's like the, the trauma, the, 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 the traumatic events that mold us, that, 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 you know, discovery, that first drink or what, Whatever the substance is, whatever it is, it's food. For me, it was food. You know, I, yeah. I, I, just, I, I put on 70 pounds in 12 months at 11 years old because I'm eating my feelings away and I, what I call my seven deadly symptoms, which was food, uh, success, um, uh, masturbation, medication, meditation, whatever, anything to escape this 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 dreadful feeling that lived inside of me that the mental dis-ease was a family heirloom you know the kind you know i never met my grandfather he passed before i was born but my talk about him you know it was like like lullaby stories they were just you know they were like horror stories yeah you, you know, they talk about this epigenetic trauma and how the ancestors passed down this trauma from generation to generation and digging and digging and digging deeper and deeper into the trauma only gets you so far. At some point, uh, you know, there is a point where we all reach where we have to uh, and decide to actually move on from it and decide that um, I'm not my story, that I can choose something else right now, a different mindset, a different way to step forward. And it's almost like handing the trauma back to the ancestors. You know, if you can think of it in like an imaginal kind of a ritual way, like this is your crap. This is your stuff. I'm done carrying it around in my body and psyche. I'm going to be free of this now because I've got other stuff to do. And there's a lot of joy in life and life is short. And so there's two parts to it. There's the talk therapy part. There's the story. There's the feeling of the feelings. And then at some point there is the moving on and the letting go and the, and the getting on with the next thing. And, you know, I, I've been lucky to be able to 
really have some great support in both of those parts of my life. And, um, and, you know, the, the thing is, when we think about our gener, you know, the generations before us and the, and the ones, a couple, you know, there was so, so much abuse and chaos and alcoholism. I mean, I'm all Irish in mine. So, you know, my Irish heritage, my paternal grandfather was a raging alcoholic and, you know, beat my dad's brother at age two, you know, like horrible stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, all of my own memories in my own chaotic childhood. But at some point I realized like my mom's wounding and whatever made her alcoholic and my dad's wounding with him not having a dad also, um, you know, and things like that. Um, it's theirs in some way. And, and I needed to move on and, um, write a new story. And, and that's what I love about life coaching because life coaching kind of has this shift to it where it has you say, yes, all that happened. And <laughs> I'm going to create this for myself, this goal, this dream, this way of being in the world. I'm going to experiment. And you mentioned meditation, Joe, and I'm a big meditator. I've been a practicing Buddhist mindfulness person for over 25 years. And meditation can be a bad thing because it can make you kind of go around the emotions and detach from them in a way before you process them. But it's also so powerful because it can really help you witness the story that's going on in your head or witness your body. And in the end, for me, it's really been about self-acceptance, like knowing my limits, knowing my limits, knowing my when my depression comes up, knowing when my anxiety shows up, and knowing how to take care of myself now in a new and different way than the old, you know, the, the seven deadly symptoms that you spoke of, uh, instead of doing it that way. And uh, it takes some experimenting, you have to kind of be a scientist in your own life. And it sounds like that's what you've been doing also, which is, is fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I think it's fantastic that we have the ability to talk about stuff because people who are listening to this uh, may not even know that they're in a troubled uh in troubled water and, yeah. and so by listening to us it sounds familiar hey that sounds familiar uh, I, I resemble that remark and yeah. uh so that their journey can at least begin by just asking for help out of curiosity yeah. or if the pain if they can re relate to the pain um that that's where the, that's where the the, the healing can, can begin yeah, Joe, you know, the reason I did my solo show and my and wrote my book was because I wanted people to know that even though I grew up in this extraordinary, you know, quote unquote, extraordinary family, you know, uh, with this man who is an icon of comedy culture, I really feel like we are an ordinary American family in every way. And that I wanted people to know that your hero, your comedy hero was also a dad who struggled and a husband who struggled and an artist who struggled and a man who had doubts about his own ability to be a good adult and to be a, you know, a good father and a good husband. And that, and that, you know, my own journey of feeling never enough and always chasing a sense of believing in myself or, or success, like you talked about. I wanted people to know that it's okay. It's okay. This is the human journey. This is the human experience. And all those characters you see up, you know, on red carpets and all that celebrity culture we have is so full of 
bullshit and that um, we are all humans and we're all broken to begin with. And yet that's, that's the journey. That's the beauty of it all is we can all meet each other in that place, not to wallow, not to stay forever, but to take off our masks of perfection and um, uh, superhero courage and all this kind of stuff. And just know that we're all trying to find our way. And uh, as Ram Das says, you know, we're all walking each other home. And I love that. You know, your dad's comedy toward the end, and I, I listen to it even now. It's almost like it is almost, it is prophetic. Um, it is. Yeah. Talks about, uh, uh, you know, his, that bit he does about not being a part of anything. Yeah. You know, it, the danger in being a part, you know, a, a part of a group, and the and, and how and how they, the politicians, don't want us to be critical thinkers, you know. And, and I I don't know what if, when they eliminated ethics in schools in public schools, was he still alive or did that happen after? Uh, I don't know. He he died in two thousand and eight. So I mean, you know, the the education system was already pretty gutted by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, what's happening now? Yeah, uh, it, it is. It, it it gets to the point where everybody. I, I'm so troubled about this all the time, and uh, and a lot of people on my family are like, you know, stop paying attention. You know, just go with the flow, uh, and I, I think there's got to be a medium there because. The, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, it's like, what would, you know, the, uh, Billy Wilder used to say, what would Lubitsch do, right? Like, or what would he think? You know, what would George Carlin think yeah. if he was around when they stormed the Capitol on, on uh, January 6th? Yeah, so my dad, uh, obviously, we, we know a lot about how he felt about the owners of America and, 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 and greed. I mean, really, he believed greed was is the thing that will break everything. Greed greed will be it. And we're seeing that, obviously. But he had this great thing that he said that I always tell people when they ask me, what would he say? And I say, well, you know, he did say when you're born, uh, you get a ticket to the freak show. But when you're born in America, you get a front row seat. And I really believe the last five years, we that has been the epitome of our experience, is we are watching... Uh, the freak show uh, really believe that it's in charge and that it's allowed to be in charge. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, my, my dad didn't believe in the system because of the money that was in the system and, and all of that, but he really believed in individuals and loved individual people and really felt like, you know, you could look in the eyes of a person and see the entire potential of the species in each person and he was a broken-hearted idealist. He believed in the potential of this species and was very, very sad to see that we're not living even a tenth into our potential and that we are just so distracted by the games that all of this is playing. And now social media is just, you know, a distraction on billions of steroids. It's, it's insane. And our, and our, and our limited human brains cannot handle all of this stuff. So, 
you know, my dad took the position as an artist to be able to step aside and detach from the planet, as he used to say. Uh, but his heart was connected very much to every person he met, everyone he loved, everyone in his circle. Uh, but he had to take that stance in order to be the commentator, uh, the, the planetary commentator that he was. Yeah, I, 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 I feel sad. You know, overwhelming sadness in that, um, you know, what, what, what the future is, is bringing the, the, the idea of uh, the complacency uh, because we've got so many, we've got, we're controlled by, by these little devices. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I, But, you know, we talked about, you know, going to 12 steps and, you know, hitting our bottoms mentally, right? That we all had mental health bottoms that we hit before we could really wake up and see that we needed to walk towards a solution. And it's scary because we don't know as a species what our bottom will be. And we keep thinking we've hit it. Uh, and that's what I keep waiting for is some sort of collective bottom that we hit. And I think the younger generations have hit that bottom in their demand for paying attention to uh, climate crisis and, and what's going on f- with their futures as, as Danny, you're one of those people. Um, and uh, so, you know, I never give up and I, wa- I, I work every day in order to, get people to connect to their full potential and, and not so much hope in the world, but uh, belief, belief in their own capability and belief in each other. And I think that's part of the problem is we have lost our belief in each other because of the cynicism and because of the greed. And so if we can find a way to reconnect to our belief one person at a time, if that's what it takes, I know that will make a difference in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, well, I think we have to start wrapping up. (laughs) But I think that's an excellent place to, because you're talking about belief in each other and in ourselves. And you can't really do that unless you do this first. Yeah. Unless you talk about your trauma and your troubles because other people have them too. All these people we see in the news, they all have it and we can just hate them, but we can, I don't like to try to understand a lot of them, but, (laughs) but there's a lot of work that we need to do within ourselves to relate to other people, to find the right way to make a change that'll stick, that'll last and that'll work. Um, and that's why that's why this this podcast and things that you do like with Woman on the Verge it's so important because that other change isn't going to happen unless we look to ourselves first. Yeah. But the nice nice thing is is people are more and more people are listening. Uh, and so I've I've been involved in this discussion uh, starting in two thousand eight. It was really discriminated against, demonized. Uh, but now all these wonderful organizations uh, uh, and, and high-end, high-end celebrities are talking, athletes, yes, celebrities, it's everybody. it's huge in the culture right now. 
Yeah, yeah. We well, I used to say at the very beginning it was wanting it, you know, wanting it to be cool to have, you know, talk about mental disease. <laughs> you know, to be, you know, it's cooler to have a disease than to have your drug dealer on speed dial. <laughs> it's way cooler to have your therapist on speed dial. That's for sure. <laughs> I love it. But this was really wonderful. And, and Kelly, we're definitely going to bring you back when we can talk for like hours and I'm 100% filling out the women on the verge. So you'll be seeing me very soon. (laughs) Danny. Thank you guys for having me. This was great. And I love having big, deep, meaningful conversations with people. And it's really very cool that we got to have it here in this space today. No kidding, Me Too was created by Joe Pantoliano and Daniela Pantoliano. Produced by Robert Mathers at Exit 30 Media with support from Jason Insolaco and Gary Krantz at Krantz Media Group. Special thanks to Mark Krantz Productions and Dora Bloom at TalkShoe. Hey, if you haven't already, please like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, rate and review the show. That'd be great, too. It'll help other people find us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.